Mark finds satisfaction in his physical appearance. He trains at the gym every day and only feels truly happy when he's in tip-top shape. Mackenzie is all about friends. She finds her fulfillment in relationships, yet seems to sadly burn through friends by demanding too much of them. Sylvia has always had her eye on senior level management. She works long hours and is often stressed, but her dream of success keeps her going. Mike loves all things sports. He lives and dies with his teams, and he spends hours every single day on fantasy sports, online betting, and talk radio. Rachel can't get enough travel. She's always looking forward to her next trip, and so COVID has sapped her purpose, and she's actually been quite severely depressed. Scott worships his appetite, literally. He visits his fridge every hour for snacks and treats, and he never lets his pantry run dry because that would literally kill him. Patrick lives for sexual fulfillment. He finds himself using others to get what he wants from them, even if it leaves him feeling dirty and guilty. But he just keeps doing it. What's a common theme for all these people? Well, they all desire fulfillment, right? They all crave satisfaction. They want to be filled up. And they strive to satisfy their appetites, no matter the cost. Maybe as I read through those hypothetical examples, you saw little glimpses of yourself in one or more of them. I know I certainly do. I wrote them. And so the, for the question for us as Christians then is this, how should we think about our desires, our cravings, our need for fulfillment? I mean, when we ever we see a desire, a craving rise up in us, ought we to just religiously kind of stifle that? with any means that we have? Should we clamp down on all cravings and, and punish ourselves with penance if we give in? Well, church, we continue on today in our study in the gospel account written by Luke. Luke was a first century doctor who took reports and accounts of the life of Jesus and put them together in a trustworthy history Desiring his readers have certainty about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we come to chapter 9, specifically verses 10 through 17. Chapter 9, verse 10 of the Gospel of Luke. Let me read that for us. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside, to find lodging and get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves 
and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. With our time this afternoon, church family, let's see three Ps together. Three Ps, a problem, the provision, and the provider. The problem, the provision, and the provider. First, the problem. It's pretty evident, but let's dig in. So we saw last week in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9 how Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples with power to preach the kingdom of God, cast out demons, and heal diseases. And now in our passage today, it appears their tour has come to an end, right? Look at verse 10. Luke says, On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. You can imagine it's been quite the experience for them. Casting out demons, healing diseases, having Jesus' power empower them to do such amazing acts of mercy. You can also imagine it's been a stressful, fatiguing time. And so Jesus, kind as he is, decides it's time for a breather, a little bit of a break. So there in verse 10, Luke says, he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Jesus is kind to think of his disciples. Their ministry is a taxing one. I think it's in Mark's gospel that we see that the disciples hadn't even really had time to eat. They were so busy with ministry. Even Jesus himself, the Son of God, has at time in in Luke's gospel removed himself to pray and refresh his soul in solitude. And so here, Jesus brings his friends and says, "Let's, let's go away. Let's rest. At least that's the plan right? The crowds, it turns out, are not going to be so easily dissuaded from following after Jesus. Look at verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. Man, he he just can't get away from the crowds, can he? So if you were Jesus, and you were just running sun up to sun down, exhausting ministry, how would you respond to this? Your vacation is getting interrupted. Is Jesus upset? Is his goodwill expired? Does he turn to these crowds with frustration and just tell them to leave him alone? The leprosy will last till next week, folks. I'll come back. Verse 11. And Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Jesus' getaway with his disciples is interrupted, but he responds with mercy and grace, doesn't he? And he continues then to expend his already expended energy in healing these sick and preaching the good news of the kingdom of the coming of the coming of the kingdom of God. The crowds, they're just going to prove ever present and ever needy. Jesus is going to prove ever compassionate. And so the day that was meant to be restful isn't. It's busy with ministry. But then you kind of feel like the disciples are feeling the same way as the day because the day begins to wear away. Luke writes in verse 12, Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside and to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. 
Now, to be honest, when I first studied those words, I thought, okay, the disciples are being the disciples here, being a little self-centered, they're being a little harsh, they're just sending people out into the night sky, what's going on? But as I thought about it, I think what might be happening is the exact opposite. Because the, the disciples know if, if the people stay, I mean, are they going to pull an all-nighter? Are they just going to do healing throughout the night? There's no food? Well, actually, to be considerate, they should just send these folks back. They can come again the next morning. And they see these people. They see they're hungry. They see their teacher. He's working hard. And so they're trying to be sensitive. And they're trying to say, you know, let's just call it a day. Let's give everybody an opportunity to see their, to their needs. We'll come back again next time. Jesus has a different plan, doesn't he? And actually, he's going to use this situation to teach the disciples and us a valuable lesson. See, there's a problem here that needs to be resolved. And the disciples, it seems on the face of it, have a pretty good solution. Jesus has another solution. Look at verse 13. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. What? What do you mean, Jesus? We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. So they look, they look at two things. They look at their food stash, very minimal. And then they look at their cash reserves. In other gospels, we see that Philip responds and says, teacher, 200 denarii wouldn't even feed these many people. That was a, over seven months wage. So they look at their food, they look at their, their money, and they seem to say, there's really no other way. What, what are you trying to do? You're trying to make them starve to death? What's more, Luke goes on in verse 14 to say, for there were about 5,000 men. It's like he's compounding the problem. It's a big one. So the disciples conclude, send them away, Jesus. They need to go. They need to take care of themselves. <laughs> but who's been taking care of them all day? I mean, who's been healing their diseases all day? Who's been teaching them about a powerful kingdom of God all day? He's right there. I mean, Jesus had just recently given his disciples power to cast out demons, to heal sick people. And so perhaps they should have said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless, unless you were to do something, Jesus. We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless, unless you provide dinner, Jesus. But they neglect to ask the king in their midst. They can't take their eyes off the limits to their food and their material resources, and they, they can't take their eyes off of that to look to the limitation-destroying one standing in front of them. I think the application for us is clear, church family. When we're faced with insurmountable problems, we can so often get overwhelmed with the problems that we never find time to pray to the one who actually knows what to do with them and has sovereignly ordained that they are there to begin with. We get our heads so bowed down with our problems that we neglect to ask our problem-solving Savior to come and save us. And when we actually do get around to praying, we pray particularly because we have particular ways we think Jesus should help us. 
instead of trusting him to do what's best. And so Jesus here is gently directing his disciples and us to look to him as a source for all we need. So that's the problem posed in Luke chapter 9, verse 10 and following. It's the hunger of the crowds. Next, we see the provision. Look there midway through verse 14. And Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. We don't know exactly why Jesus is instructing this. It seems that if at nothing else, he's just making it simpler to distribute the food that he's about to provide. But there in verse 15, everyone follows suit to his command. And that sets the stage in verse 16, and the spotlight pans to Jesus. This is what Luke says. He says, And taking the five loaves, verse 16, and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven. When he looks up to, his, to heaven, he's looking up to his father and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Now think about it. The, the odds here are laughable, right? Five loaves, two fish, at least 5,000 people. So I'm not good with math, so I, I'm sure some of you could just do this like this, but I had to get a calculator, do some division. Basically, if there are just 5,000 men, each one of them is getting one one-thousandth of a loaf of bread. It's less than a crumb. This is going to be embarrassing. But verse 17 is flabbergasting. And they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate. What? Well, surely they were, they were starving afterwards, had to go to the towns anyway. No, they all were satisfied. Jesus had multiplied the tiny store of food available into an overabundance. Back in verse 13, the disciples had wondered what to do for, what's the word? All these people. And now in verse 17, we see all those same people are satisfied. Their stomachs are full. So full, they turn away the rest. Not only was the edge taken off and they were tied over until later that evening when their stomachs would start growling again, they were filled up. They were completely satisfied. Their minds were not going to the next meal. They were happy the way they were. That's the way the king provides. But that's not all. Luke finishes his account with that's just kind of that kind of almost forgetful line. Because what are forgetful? Leftovers are forgetful, aren't they? And he says, what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Jesus' leftovers were more than he had to work with at the beginning. To satisfy the crowd did not deplete his power. There's more left over. The object lesson for the disciples and for us is stark. When the problem seems overwhelming, when Jesus provides, he not only addresses the need, but he provides more than we could have ever asked to begin with. And when it's all over, there's still provision left. Such is the power of the king. Christian, can you trust your savior to provide what you need? Perhaps you're thinking, 
you know, I just asked the Lord for something for three months, and I've got nothing. Have you considered the fact that your Savior knows what you need? Not what you think you need, but what he knows you need, and he will supply that abundantly. I'm sure right now, each one of you can quickly come up with a long list of all the needs in your life right now. From the simplest financial need, they're not all simple, but you know, the, the simplest, all the way to the most complicated relational need. From, from the most obvious career move need, all the way to the most complex mental health need. Across the gamut, we all have an abundance of neediness. But here we're confronted with a Savior who has an abundance of need-providing power. And that power he directs toward you, Christian, to provide all you need and more. So the question for you is, will you trust him? This is the provision. But lest we stop there... We must remember that glorious as this miracle is, the provision of food here is not the best thing about this story, nor is it the most important part of this story. No, Jesus doesn't just give us provision for our needs. Jesus is the provision for our needs. Jesus doesn't just give us, doesn't just stop at mere provision, but he provides himself. And so we can't stop at mere provision. Our second point, we need to go and spend the rest of our time thinking about our third point, the provider. Think about it. If Jesus only met our physical needs as this grand giver, well, couldn't he have just performed this miracle a couple thousand more times? Made ancient Palestine a happier place for a few decades and then kind of retired in peace at a Palestinian resort? No. Jesus came to do so much more than fill hungry stomachs. Jesus came to fill us with himself. And when Jesus gives himself, he doesn't just provide for our basic needs of hunger and thirst. He provides for our deepest needs of soul hunger and salvation. When Jesus gives himself, he doesn't just provide for us. He overabundantly provides because he gives himself to us. And so this act of provision is meant to just point us to the provider. The Apostle Paul kind of puts this in some astounding logic in Romans 8.32. When he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with his son graciously give us all things? You see the logic. If God has given us his son, there's nothing greater he can give you ever. The gift has been given. And eternity is just understanding that gift more. God has superabundantly provided for all our needs. And so how, as Christians, ought we to think about our lesser needs? We can be sure he will provide everything we need according to his perfect plan. Jesus is the bread of life. And as he broke that bread, so his body would be broken for us. If he's ours, what else could we need? If you're here this afternoon or you're tuning in online and you're not a Christian, we're, we're so grateful you're here with us. 
I wonder, though, as you think about who you are as, as a human being, do you think of yourself as a satisfaction seeker? You should. By nature, we all want fulfillment. We all want to be filled up. We all want enjoyment and satisfaction. You are a satisfaction seeker. But second question, do you, do you see yourself as a satisfied satisfaction seeker? I mean, has life lived up to the billing for you? I think for most people, if they're honest, most people are a bit disappointed with life. Dreams and desires have proven to be not all they were cracked up to be. And the more life goes by, the more these dreams, or you're just a little bit more cynical about them. It, it, the more and more you, uh, life goes by, the more and more you feel like a fresh grown-up on Christmas morning. I mean, you remember the holidays as a kid. It was just enchanting, the excitement, the wonder, the awe of it all. You just, you just want that feeling back because now you're, you're a grown-up and it's, it's fine, but you got to pay bills the next day. It's not what it used to be. You long for something more satisfying. You long to be a, a child again sometimes. Peter Pan has a point. You want something lasting, something filling, something that won't fade away. Have you ever felt that way? Well, the author C.S. Lewis once wrote about that feeling. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation for that is that we were made for another world. See, God has designed you and me, friend, to find our greatest joy and satisfaction in knowing him. But what we've done is reject that design. The Bible calls that rejection sin. It says we've, we've all tried to find our greatest delight, the, the one thing that can once and for all sate our hunger in the things of this world. Good things, probably. Ultimate, thi ultimate things, definitely not. And so we've just spent our lives trying to stuff our face with crumbs, expecting to be filled up when a feast is awaiting us in a relationship with our Creator. We've spent our lives scratching and clawing after some sort of lasting delight, and we haven't yet found it. What, what did Bono say? Still haven't found what I'm looking for? This is a theme throughout the hearts of humanity. One, on, the one, on the one hand, deep desire, yearning for satisfaction, and on the other hand, just never quite getting there. And yet we keep trying. Samuel Rutherford, Scottish pastor from the 1600s, likened the search for satisfaction in this world to digging into cold ice, expecting to discover a warm fire underneath. You won't find it. And the more you try, the more unhappy, the more cynical, the more skeptical you'll become. But the good news, friend, is that God has not left you alone in your disappointment. But he has pursued you and he has sent his son to come and bear your rejection of him, your sin, on himself. Your sin deserved the judgment of God. But Jesus came to bear your judgment on himself on the cross so that you could be united to God again by faith, finding satisfaction in him alone, the one you were created to enjoy. So how can you come to find satisfaction in your life? 
Friend, you need to recognize you're needy, you're lost, you have a sin problem nothing on this earth can solve, you have a hunger problem nothing on this earth can sate, and then you need to turn and find in God what you need. You you must repent of your sin and trust in what he has done through his son's death and resurrection to take all your sin guilt away and draw you close to himself. Friend, turn to God. He promises to satisfy your deepest desires. And Christian, this is where each one of us needs to spend time searching our own hearts regularly. Are you satisfied with Christ? He provides abundantly more than you could ever ask or think. Are you satisfied with Christ? He has given you his very self. Are you satisfied with him? He has united you to himself by faith. Are you satisfied with that? He has promised to return for you. He has given his spirit to you. So are you satisfied with Christ? The world will keep on urging you to push all your chips in on earthly treasure. But you will find that each thing you bet on for satisfaction, whether it's food or sex or pleasure or money or career or family or reputation or your following on social media, everything that fills you up will capsize under the weight of your worship. Only Jesus will satisfy you. Christian, are you satisfied with him? Are you spending enough time to enjoy full meals with him in his word? Aubrey read earlier for us from Isaiah 55, that wonderful invitation from God. Christian, each one of us needs to hear it afresh this afternoon. These are the words of your God. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It doesn't cost anything. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Christian, do you see how your need for satisfaction can only be found and met in Christ? I'm I'm afraid for myself and I'm afraid for some of you that we're just trying to get through today. And then we're just trying to get through this week. And then we're just trying to get through this year. And then we're really just trying to get through this life. We're never, ever stopping long enough to reflect on how much we need right now. We're not pausing our busy schedules long enough to consider how our satisfaction is just not really being met. And then we need to turn to Christ. We're not lingering long enough to admit we've been trying to stuff our faces with fast food instead of digging deep into a feast that Jesus provides. A Christian, are you seeking to feed your soul on Jesus? Are you even taking time to ask that question? 
You must. The author and pastor, John Piper, has written, when Jesus Christ takes his glorious place at the center of the solar system of our lives, the massive pool of his all-satisfying beauty connects and corrects the erratic path of every planet and makes the whole system sing with joy. You see what he's saying? He's using the solar system as, a, as an analogy for our lives. And he's saying that instead of focusing solely on the planet of your marriage and all the problems that has, or instead of focusing solely on the problems of your finances and that, that planet that you never really want to admit is there, or, or instead of focusing solely on the problems in the planet of your career or your health, fix your eyes on the sun, on the provider of all you need and fill your heart with his beauty. And as you do, see the, the other planets, the other elements of your life begin to run their rightful course around him as the center. Brother, sister, we, we began by asking how as Christians we should think about our desires. We all have them. How to think about our cravings. We all have them. How to think about our need for fulfillment. And I think the place to start is to recognize what so many others have said. That our desires are not too strong. That's not the problem. But our desires are misdirected. And they're pointed towards things that will never satisfy. Because only Jesus can. And when Jesus satisfies, he does so abundantly with leftovers to spare. So as I study this passage, the desire I have often, and I think it happens sometimes, is to, to help us to actually try to put our, our, our arms around how to take a passage and actually apply it. And so I wondered this question, what does a Christian look like? What does a Christian look like who's finding this kind of satisfaction in Jesus? Well, what does a Christian look like who's actually done these things really well by God's grace? Of course, we're all works in progress, but maybe you could add a few more in your community groups or, or just conversations afterwards. But here's a few things I thought of. What does a Christian look like who is finding all satisfaction in Jesus? I think someone who's striving to find his or her full satisfaction in Jesus alone is someone who enjoys earthly pleasures in moderation. Someone who loves the good gifts of this world. Food, entertainment, video games, work, social media, but knows when to stop. Knows when it's becoming something more than it's designed to be. Knows when to put it away and call it a day. I think someone who's striving to find his or her fullest satisfaction in Jesus alone is someone whose faith isn't rattled when suffering comes. Not to say they just take it and say, oh, this is just great. No, but their faith is not rattled to the core by suffering. Why? Because their greatest joy, the greatest joy they have is located not in this life, not in this world, but in heaven. And no threatening can rattle heaven. I think someone who's striving to find his or her fullest satisfaction in Jesus alone is someone who doesn't demand of others more than they're designed to give. 
and their relationships as, as a result are usually deep and meaningful, and they don't worship or abuse their friendships. I think someone who's striving to find his or her fullest satisfaction in Jesus alone is someone who talks about the gospel, who doesn't find it weird, awkward, or abnormal to get open and honest about Jesus with others. And I think someone who's striving to find his or her fullest satisfaction in Jesus alone is someone who's, who exudes joy and contentment. There's a certain calm that pervades their life when you talk to them. Because if God has already given them Christ, they know he won't withhold anything else good for them. And so I wonder, Christian, does that look like you? The good news is that you don't need to wait to look this way to run to Jesus right now. What do we say earlier? He will embrace you in his arms. All the, all the need he requires is that you feel your need for him. Christian, you might not look like this in all the ways you desire right now. You might see, man, my satisfaction is split all over the board. I am not finding satisfaction in my, in my king. But the good news, Christian, is that his arms are open wide. And you must run to him to satisfy your deepest soul hunger in him. Lift your eyes, Christian. Lift your eyes to your Savior, because he is all you need. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for not taking the time to feast our souls in you. We confess we're just too busy. We're too stuck on our phones. We're too caught up in our schedules. We're too bothered by our anxieties. And we're often found not running to your throne. So help us. Wake us up if need be. And cause us to find our hope in Christ alone. In Christ, as we'll sing in a minute, who is our daily bread. In Christ, as we'll sing in a minute, who is our water that quenches every thirst. Be with us as we sing now. Be with those who want to find satisfaction in you. Lord, draw them to yourself. Be with those who just feel nothing towards you right now. Convict and comfort as we sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.